0: Welcome to Bank of Singapore Unplugged. Our panelists uh, for this next discussion will delve deeper into the complexities and challenges of our world and also anticipate the key risks for 2023. So joining us for this session will be our moderator, Mahi Mahiyuddin, the chief economist at Bank of Singapore. And we're also very delighted to have, dialing in live from China this morning, Professor David Daokui Li. He currently serves as the Mansfield Freeman chair professor at the Department of Finance at Tsinghua University. And he's also the director at the Center for China in the World Economy at the School of Management at Economics at Tsinghua University.
1: Good morning, everyone. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm delighted to be able to speak with Professor Kishore Mababani and Professor David Lee for the next half an hour or so about the global outlook. Now, we're going to have a pretty wide-ranging discussion. Now, the first thing I want to do is I want to start on China. It's very clear to us that China is back, and for investors, that means China's markets are back in the game. Now, this is a fundamentally important piece of news for the start of this year. If you think about the last three years, China has been closed. We haven't been able to travel to China. The the economy has been much weaker. But now China is open again. So my first question to both our panelists is that if we now have the resumption of tourism and travel and more frequent business exchanges, and diplomatic exchanges. Gentlemen, do you think this is now going to lower tensions in Asia again? So let me start actually with Professor David first in Beijing.
0: Yes, first of all, thank you very much, Bank of Singapore, for having me here. Before the COVID, one of the things I like the most is to go to various investment forums like, like yours, okay? And I look forward to joining you in person uh, before too long, okay? So to, give you, uh, to answer your question and then to give you a big picture view, let me first say that. Uh, yes, the answer is yes. In principle, with more travels, with more contacts, the relations between China and the U.S. will become... Uh, smoother, however, however, there's one catch, that is, with more Chinese tourists, with more people from China visiting the U.S., it's likely, it's likely for us to to have um, accidents, to have uh, people-to-people exchange issues uh, that may mushroom into uh, into diplomatic tensions. For example, one Chinese citizen. Uh, in the U.S. uh, violating certain rules and being arrested and claimed to be abused. And then that would prompt Chinese leaders to step in and the U.S. will uh, reciprocate. So that may in my mind be a a risk, okay? With the opening up of the uh, travel. Uh, Very quickly, very quickly, I'm inspired by Kishore's speech. Let me give you my very simple, big picture view on the U.S China relations that is for the time being for the from now to the coming no, no, to the coming uh, I would say summer situations of the relationship uh, is pretty much under control uh, just for the one first coming the next 18 months why because the current situation is two sides uh, two sides the White House and the Chinese uh, uh, Chinese president are very pragmatic the Joe the Bidens team on, diplom- on uh, di- diplomacy is much more professional, much more experienced than that, than that of uh, President Trump. And also Chinese side is becoming very pragmatic, much more pragmatic than before, than what two years ago in dealing with the US. So that the two administration teams are working hard to contain any problems. However, however, the US Capitol Hill, as well as, as, as um, the uh, local level leg- legislation, like in Texas, are very much used up in, um, in fighting, in uh in in jacking up their rhetorics against China. And so that's the risk. The risk is from the grassroots, the risk is not from the top leadership. So and what and why 18 months? Why up, not after 18 months? Up in, after 18 months, the election cycle kicks in. And uh, who knows? Who knows whether the uh, President Trump will, former President Trump will run again. Who knows uh, how these uh, US presidential candidates will talk about China? So situation will become will change in, in 18 months. But for the time being, the situation is pretty much under control.
1: Thanks very much, David. That's very helpful indeed. And it's very heartening to hear that you say that the uh, situation is better and under control again. Kishore, do you agree with that?
2: Well, I mean, I certainly agree with uh, David that in the short run, things seem to be better. And uh, by the way, today, uh, in a few hours' time, Janet Yellen will be meeting Liu He, a key in, in Chinese policymaker in Davos, in a few hours' time. And I can tell you that actually the good news is that Janet Yellen and Liu He know each other very well personally and get along very well personally, but they, could not, they were not able to meet partly because of COVID, partly because of tensions. But now that meeting, I'm sure David agree will agree will be a good one. But as David uh, pointed out, there are other forces in the United States, certainly Congress uh, is going to be difficult, and the new Speaker of the House has already promised uh, Kevin McCarthy, that he will go to Taiwan, and I think if he goes to Taiwan, it will be a hugely provocative uh, act on the part of the uh, United States. So, you can see, this is, the, this is my paradoxical point. On the one hand, you have everything changed, on the other hand, nothing has changed, and both sides are true.
1: Thanks very much, Kishore. So that's a good start. If we're going to have some lowering of geopolitical tensions, mm. but many of us in this room are worried that US China tensions will play out, particularly over Taiwan. So I want to hear from both of you whether we think that investors are too fearful about the risks of Taiwan, or whether Taiwan itself could become a major political flashpoint in the next few years. Um, let me start with Kishore first.
2: Well, I actually, on on Taiwan, I was getting uh, pessimistic for a while. But now I'm less pessimistic because I, unfortunately, of course, since I don't get access to state secrets, uh, I don't know exactly what uh, Xi Jinping and Joe Biden discussed uh, in Bali. But my sense is that the temperature on Taiwan went down very sharply after the Bali meeting between Joe Biden and Xi Jinping. Because I think one thing that Joe Biden was able to do was talk face to face with Xi Jinping and tell him categorically, our one China policy hasn't changed. We're not pushing for the independence of Taiwan. So that assurance I think must have made a big difference because I sense that on Taiwan, things uh, have, have calmed down. So the danger of it becoming a short-term flashpoint is not uh, real. But over the long run, there still leaves the unresolved question of what is the long-term solution to Taiwan. And if you want a long-term solution, read my book Has China won.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much, Professor. So David, let's uh, hear your views on uh, Taiwan as well, please.
0: Yes, in principle, I do agree with Kishore's view, although I do want to read your book <laughs> again, okay? Now, let me fit in with two, I think, very important and fundamental reasons. Uh, first fundamental reason is that the U.S. military Represented by the pent- uh, Pentagon. what so the concern is important. That is, if, if the US is involved in a military conflict with the mainland China and Taiwan, there's no 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 chance for the US to win easily. The US will suffer miserably, okay, because because Taiwan is so close to China and the Chinese military capacity near the Chester coastal is so much more powerful than the US. And also the, the political determination on the Chinese side to, uh, to resolve it militarily if, if it comes to that situation is so much more than the US. So the Pentagon, the Pentagon knows that they want to avoid military conflict with uh, China in, uh, in Taiwan. That's first, I think, fundamental reason, fundamental uh, uh, factor there. Actually, remember January uh, 6th of 20, 2021, right? Uh, uh, when, the, when the Capitol Hill was running through uh, turmoil, right? The U.S. Uh, Chief of Staff, I believe, or maybe the, the U.S. Defense Ministry, Secretary, made a phone call without approval of uh, President uh, Trump to his Chinese counterpart, saying that don't worry. If anything happens, it's not our intention. Don't, don't, don't get into military contact, military inf- uh, conflict by accident. Remember that? That's very important detail. The second important factor is that President Xi Jinping has already got his third term. And if anything, last year's uh, surprise from Chinese politics is that uh, not only President, Trump, uh, uh, President Xi Jinping got his third term, he's got a, uh, his team pretty much aligned uh, with his uh, own uh, political agenda, okay? he's got his own team, okay uh, fully in power, so that so that no longer uh, he's no longer so impatient, so eager to resolve the issue. So in other words, in other words, uh, from the Chinese side, the political leaders seem to think Tan, again, is on the Chinese side in resolving the Taiwan issue. So no hurry. No hurry, okay? So I think I agree with Kishore, but but I'm feeling there's two important, I think, important fundamental factors. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Professor, that's very helpful. So yes, if you think about on the Chinese side, there's less pressing need to, as Kishore says, find a long-term solution to Taiwan. At the same time, on the US side, it seems quite clear that the appetite for a military conflict is obviously low, particularly under the Biden administration, which I think most of us in the room would agree is more sensible than the Trump administration. Now, if I just move on from Ch- uh, Taiwan and just to think about the other facets of the uh, U.S.-China relationship, there's three things I just want to dwell on here in terms of factors that can worry investors. Firstly, tech competition, particularly the sanctions that we're seeing on semiconductor chips. Secondly, are we likely to get more trade sanctions from the US side as we saw in the Trump administration? And thirdly also, what are the risks of Chinese companies being delisted from US exchanges? So gentlemen, I want to get your views on these three issues. Um, Maybe I'll start with David first and then we'll come to Kishore.
0: Well, very important question for our investors. Let me go through them one by one. Okay, first trade. I do not think for the time being, again, for the coming two years, uh, the the general trade issues will will boil up. I do not think so. Why? Because the U.S. side is now much more pragmatic than uh, the the, the era of President Trump. Uh, The U.S. side knows that without uh, uh, continuing the current trade with China, inflation is hard to be under control. And also a lot of uh, emerging supply of medical equipment medical supplies cannot be secured because china is still very very super important actually more important than numbers show uh, in terms of supplying the us with uh, manufactured goods so on trade issue i do not think there is a major issue if anything on the trade issue the us side and china may re- even reach some kind of agreement second issue tech technology yes major issue major major issue because i I think the U.S. side rightly, rightly believes that uh, technology is the single most important thing for the Chinese economy to be able to challenge the U.S. Okay, So it's likely for the U.S. to single out certain Chinese companies, certain technologies uh, on which the U.S. impose in, uh, sanctions. And the Chinese side will uh, reciprocate in some, some way. So let's, let's stay, uh, stay put on this issue. The third issue is delisting from the stock market that issue i think is basically resolved basically resolved why because the chinese side has already made in in quotation signs concessions to the us sec to allow us auditing firms to to look into the uh, details of chinese companies listed in the u.s stock market so i am very happy as a small investor okay Every night I watch the U.S. Uh, U.S. stock market, especially those companies from China. Uh, so I'm very happy. I think one of the uh, things uh, not properly mentioned in our discussions about the Chinese economy, Chinese finance, that is issue. Progress has been made, and I do not see a major risk of delisting. Uh, however, let me add. Uh, I think there is one issue, one risk which I mentioned before, that is, I do worry about the people-to-people friction, okay? When Chinese tourists, when Chinese students go resuming their pace of going to the U.S., there are likely to be issues, and in such a nationalistic environment, there might be frictions, and these frictions may, may scale up to attract the media and the political attention.
1: Thanks very much, David. So, two things we should be less concerned about trade and China's companies facing the risks of delisting. But two things we should be still worried about, obviously the technology competition, and as as David has said, maybe the uh, resumption of tourism and travel causing issues between the US and China. Kishore, I'd like to get your views on this as well, please.
2: Well, I must say I I agree with the points that uh, David has made. By the way, I should emphasize uh, that... uh, David is very well informed, you know. <laughs> he's very well connected in Beijing. I know that. <laughs> I was in Beijing and I saw him uh, operate. And I. He's, he's very well informed, very well plugged in. So I would say pay a lot of attention, give a lot of weight to what David says to you today. Uh, on the trade front, I definitely agree uh, with him. And also because in private, I can tell you, uh, I, I've been told by f- my friends in the Biden administration privately within the Biden administration, they concede that these tariffs on China have not hurt China, have not hurt the Chinese people. Instead, they've hurt American workers, American consumers, and actually made American inflation worse. So in that sense, the, the trade will not be this issue. But on the tech war, he's, uh, David is uh, also right that there will be other moves to, in a sense... Uh, the cut China uh, on uh, cut China's access to high technology because the United States believe that the way you stop China's economic growth is by depriving it of the best technology. And by the way, I want to add as an aside: I was in Germany in September last year in a place called Schloss Elmau. And I happened to meet uh, uh, the CEO of ASML, the Dutch company that produces the best lithograph machines for manufacturing computer chips. And he indicated that he's under a lot of pressure also to cut off supplies to China. So it's a global thrust and not just uh, United States thrust. Now, I hope that David is right about the company's issue and that will subside. Uh, And he's also right that that is now uh, every day you hear stories of people who are Chinese or who look Chinese. So unfortunately, Japanese and Koreans also get beaten up <laughs> in the streets <laughs> because they look Chinese uh, in, 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 in the United States. So there is a very high uh, anti-China temperature that is still uh, alive and well. But by the way, one, one subject we haven't discussed, uh, uh, I want to quickly mention that it's amazing how fast the consensus changes. You know, up to two months ago, you remember that the, the conventional wisdom was that China would re- retain its zero-COVID policy, wouldn't open up its economy, and lo and behold, I was shocked at how fast China has opened up its economy. It's actually quite shocking. And also, uh, the, uh, two months ago, if you read The Economist and all the Western journals, they were saying, oh, Xi Jinping is becoming Maoist. He's going back to his Marxist roots. He's turning away from reform. Now we know all that was rubbish, <laughs> right? Two months ago, rubbish was the consensus, right? And now we know that Xi Jinping is actually especially e- even more committed Uh, to opening up the Chinese economy. I want to to say this, going back to my very first point, that you be careful of the Anglo-Saxon media uh, when it comes to understanding China because they always get it wrong. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Kishore, <laughs> Kishore, Kishore uh, this is a very important point uh, Kishore has made. Can I very quickly add my uh, perspective on this issue, okay? Now, uh, I actually, uh, I just finished a draft of a book called China's Worldview, sending to the W.W. Norton. This is an informal advertisement. It will come out this year, okay? Mm. Now, my simple, uh, one of the simple views, which is often neglected in the media, is that look at the Chinese Communist Party The Chinese ruling party, uh, the Chinese Communist Party, has one very, very important tradition beyond any individual leaders, okay? That is pragmatism, okay? Why pragmatism? Because the Chinese Communist Party spent 22 years, 22 years in brutal, brutal fighting against various enemies' military. Okay, any party being able to assume national power. after 22 years of very, very brutal military wars, have to be, the, the party has to be pragmatic, okay? Has to be a bit very adaptive. So this is what we see, we have seen what's happening in China, okay? The nature, the DNA of being pragmatic, being, uh, being in the spirit of fighting a military war, being able to adapt quickly is not lost in the ruling party okay so let me quickly add this one so that in this regard the chinese communist party is totally different from the former soviet union the party in the former soviet union although they share the same name also it's different from those in north korea okay but let's don't publish publicize this north koreans may, may may protest against me okay anyway so this is a very-
2: <laughs> <laughs> come back be careful we'll be careful <laughs> <so> <laughs>
1: Thanks very much, David, and thanks very much, Kishore. So obviously, all of us in the audience should be reading both professors' books. I think that's the most important thing. Now, actually, we have a lot of questions coming. So let me just digress slightly. And One of the questions that has come here is, can ASEAN be the mediator or even the arbitrator between the US and China? So let me pass that to Kishore first. Um, Well...
2: ASEAN cannot be the mediator or the arbitrator, but ASEAN can have an influence if it is united and expresses a common position. Now, I'm going to give away a a small secret. Uh, It's a secret because um, I, I run something called the Asian... Peace Program and every month we come out with essays uh, saying how we can have peace in Asia. please please feel free to support the Asian Peace Program. <laughs> but the essay that we're coming out with next week, and this is why it's a secret, uh, is from an Indonesian uh, academic, and her concluding paragraph is that maybe ASEAN should propose that there be trilateral cooperation between ASEAN, China, and US. Now, it is politically very difficult for the Biden administration to do positive things with China because they get attacked. But if ASEAN proposes it, then US can say, oh, we are just saying yes to ASEAN. And China can say, we're saying yes to ASEAN. So ASEAN, in that sense, that essay is coming out next week. Keep it a secret. (laughs) Uh, And you can have a look at it. But I I think that's the sort of thing uh, ASEAN
0: can do.
1: So I'm going to come back on a follow-up question, Kishore, on ASEAN in a moment. Let's hear what David has to think. David?
0: Yeah, my very simple answer is unlikely. Unlikely. The answer is unlikely, because in order to be a good intermediator, uh, the, the the party or the countries have to be well trusted by the U.S. But as the U.S. is now feeling quite insecure. The U.S. side needs comforting. Okay, so who will be most likely be the intermediator? Uh, I believe uh, European countries, especially if you... If you include the UK, although for the time being, UK is not doing that. Okay, UK, UK is siding with the US. I think for the time to come, when the time's to come, okay, the UK will be and is likely to be to be needed. Why? Because UK is trusted. UK is trusted as a good friend of US, UK is democracy, UK has the same ideology, philosophy, political philosophy as the U.S. Well, meanwhile, in contrast, in many ASEAN countries, uh, the U.S. Uh, suspect that the ASEAN countries are being too close, too close in terms of political thinking with China. So the, the U.S. is very, very, um, very, very uh, pretty much paranoia, uh, uh, paranoid in this regard.
1: Thanks, David. So let me, throw the, let me turn the question around on its head. Is it possible that the U.S., and China may try and gain more influence over ASEAN and try and contest ASEAN more as a focal point for their own uh, competition that they're now facing. So, if that's the case, what are the risks to ASEAN from a more intense focus between the US and China on this region? And also, what are the opportunities as well? Kishore, uh, perhaps for you okay. first.
2: Well, like the, the, the danger is real. Uh, I think the ASEAN countries, all ten, are aware that if the U.S.-China contest gains momentum, as it is likely to, by the way, that the, both U.S. and China may put pressure on the ASEAN countries to take sides. And it's not a not a case of you know like you're saying, "Oh, are you with us or against us?" It'll be on specific decisions. So, for example, we've already had one test, as you know, uh, when the ASEAN countries had to choose their telecommunication systems, right? Frankly, the cheapest, best uh, telecommunication system was the one from Huawei, right? But Washington, D.C. went to every capital in ASEAN and said, hey, if you choose Huawei, this is an anti-American move, you know? So you can see how the ASEAN countries were torn. At the end of the day, the individual ASEAN countries made their decisions. Some chose Huawei, some didn't choose Huawei. But that's the first test run of the kind of pressures that will come. But at the same time, I can also add that all 10 ASEAN countries are acutely aware that unless they stand together, they'll be under a lot of pressure. So right now, it's actually quite amazing how cohesive uh, ASEAN has been on this US-China issue. And the ASEAN countries are uh, working hard to preserve their good ties with China and preserve their good ties with the US. And by the way, one blessing we have in the year 2023 is that Indonesia is the chairman of ASEAN this year. And Indonesia, as you know, is big enough, strong enough and they also now have a very capable leader, President Jokowi, who's been in office for eight, nine years. So by now he knows everybody, he knows the ropes, and so he's a very seasoned leader. So I expect ASEAN under the Indonesian chairmanship to do well this year and also protect ASEAN from the kind
0: of pressures that you spoke about.
1: Great, thanks very much, Kishore. Um, David, do you have views uh, here as well, please?
0: Yeah, this is very important and very interesting question. Okay. My answer is also very simple. I think ASEAN countries uh, putting together as as a whole have been playing this game very smartly, very intelligently by doing what? By trying to separate politics from business. Okay. For business and the economic uh, uh, issues, there's no question. There's no question that the ASEAN countries have to be close to China. In fact, the RECP, remember the RECP, which has, uh, has been signed, I think, two years ago, okay, exactly two years ago, is now sh- is now linking China and with ASEAN countries with, with essentially zero tariff, zero tariff for goods, actually, zero tariff in three, four years, okay? So on economic issues, there's no question that the the ASEAN country China will be very close, okay? However, on political and the national security issues, ASEAN countries are rightly, are rightly very careful, trying to, trying to, um, trying to, I should, I don't know, hedge, maybe it's the wrong word, trying to balance the two sides, okay? Uh, so I think that will be the pattern of the relationship down the, down the road, at least for the coming 10 years.
1: Thanks, David. Thanks very much for that. So I'm going to shift gears slightly. We've got plenty more questions coming from the audience. I have to say I'm quite happy that no one has asked me why I am wearing casual clothes while Professor Kishore and Professor David are well dressed up. That'll become more obvious in the next panel. (laughs) So the next question that I want to bring from the audience is actually to you, Professor Kishore, is can we have your view on India-China relations, Mm. particularly on the border tensions now prevailing?
2: Uh, I would say that that's the most difficult question I've been asked. That's why I've asked you, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Because the the China-India relationship, uh, as you know, has gone through ups and downs. Historically, you know that they fought a major war in 1962, in which China did better militarily. And that set back uh, China-India relations for at least two decades, you know. And it's only in the 1980s then Rajiv Gandhi met Deng Xiaoping and relations began to improve. And they were gradually improving. And initially, uh, when Prime Minister Modi took over, the China-India relations looked extremely promising because Prime Minister Modi, when he was Chief Minister of Gujarat, took many trips to China to try and learn from China how to create industrial zones and so on and so forth. And indeed, the two leaders who had spent a lot of time talking to each other, they spent two days together in Wuhan in, in Chennai and all that, so they actually got to know each other very well. Then, unfortunately, there was a major accident uh, in June 2020 and COVID, when there was another clash uh, uh, between Indian and Chinese soldiers in which both sides had casualties. And that incident accident has set back uh, India-China relations significantly. And since then, Xi Jinping and Modi didn't have a bilateral meeting. Although I can tell you, I did tell President Jokowi at the breakfast I had with him, I said, can you also nudge uh, President Xi Jinping to talk to Prime Minister Modi? And, and actually, they, they shook hands. And that was very important because in the previous meeting at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization meeting, I think in Samarkand if I'm not mistaken, they didn't even shake hands, but they shook hands in Bali. So I think. India-China relations uh, can improve because I think India uh, can emerge as a new independent third power uh, on the world stage. And by the way, I just had a piece published in India today. You can go to my website, Mavavani.net, or or Google it, uh, where I argue that the one power that, that can be the new independent third pole in the world to balance U.S. and China is India, because India is already the fifth largest economy in the world. Will definitely become the third largest economy in the world. So India is rising, uh, and so as, as that happens, I think there can be a certain degree of stability in the relationship between India and China. But there will not never be a very close relationship between the two.
1: Great, thank you, Kishore. Um, Professor Li, David, I'm going to ask you a a different question on China, if you don't mind. Um, There's a lot of focus on China in terms of the sectors that investors should be investing in. Now, obviously, we saw last year quite a lot of volatility in the technology sector. But now we've talked here in this session about the geopolitical competition between the US and China. So do you think the authorities in Beijing will become more favorable towards China's tech sector? Or will they look more at other sectors like infrastructure, renewables, clean energy, for example, as China progresses more towards its transition to a green economy?
0: Yes, wonderful question, important question. Okay, now uh, uh, let, let me follow up my point before that is the Chinese Communist Party being very pragmatic, uh, having experienced twenty-two years of brutal military wars. Okay, so right now, as we speak, the Chinese uh, policymakers are becoming much more pro-market, much more proactive, much more uh, pro-technology than 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 one year ago or two years ago. So. Specifically, uh, for the coming one or two years, even five years, the technology companies will be under a lot of, uh, 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 will under a lot of support from the uh, government and the financial sector. So uh, from our financial sector's point of view, the technology companies uh, should be paid great attention, especially the, the internet platform companies, they're coming back. They're coming back in terms of share prices, in terms of their investment activities, so on and so forth. Now, on top of this infrastructure, uh, I, to the contrary, I believe will be declining in terms of investment, in terms of importance, because overall overall, Chinese economy now has, uh, has got very good infrastructure. So especially in the busiest regions in uh, in China. So infrastructure relatively will decrease in its importance in the Chinese economy in terms of investment. And however, however there's one catch, there's one exception. The exception is the, um, the green energy sector, that is the PV panels, the long distance transmission power grids, and uh, the charging posts And this is this kind of uh, new energy, a zero carbon emission infrastructure that will be under tremendous, tremendous attention uh, by various investors and the government policy. Okay. by the way, Chinese uh, PV panel production is able to uh, enable the PV panel power generation to be cheaper than coal right now. Okay. the bottleneck is storage of power and also transmission of power across long distance. OK, and what else? OK, uh, the the property market, I'm sure you will ask this. OK, let me so answer this right now. The property market is uh, seeing wonderful recovery, wonderful recovery. This year, I don't think there will be any any default by property developers. OK, because the government will support these property developers and also uh, in major, con- major cities like Beijing, Shanghai, where property prices are still under pressure to go up, there will be more supply of residential land. There will be more property de- de- development projects. So all these trends for our financial community, the share price of property developers will not only stabilize, it's also likely to further recover a little bit.
1: Thanks very much, David. That's very helpful indeed. I mean, it's very heartening to hear that you say that China technology is back, and it's heartening for all of us that China is back as well. Now, we've got another 10 minutes, so I'm going to shift gears again and talk a little bit more about the global outlook. And we have quite a few questions here from the audience about the war in Ukraine. Specifically, the audience and all of us want to know how will this conflict be resolved. So, Kishor, please, I'll start with you.
2: Well, I think you remember I did say in my remarks that (laughs) nobody knows how this conflict uh, is going to be resolved because you have uh, almost like a perfect gridlock whereby Ukraine cannot win and Russia cannot lose. Right? So it's a perfect gridlock. And uh, as of now, I mean, it's very clear that Putin made a serious mistake uh, when he carried out this invasion. He thought it would be a walkover, frankly, right? I mean, you know, he took, when he took the eastern provinces, the Ukrainians didn't fight. When he took Crimea, Ukrainians didn't fight. So he said, okay, well, I'll walk in, you know, I'll take over Ukraine. But when he walked in, he got hammered. And frankly, the Ukrainians have fought very well, you know. It's quite amazing how well the Ukrainians have fought this formidable Russian army. It's quite a, everybody's surprised, by the way. And, as a, and also, frankly, this is not a war. You should know this only just between Russia and Ukraine because the critical thing is intelligence, knowing where the tanks are, knowing where the missiles are, knowing all that, and there's critical intelligence pouring in to Ukraine from United States, from some European countries, and that has also affected what's happened in the battlefield. Now, clearly, I think the first six months of the war were a big surprise for Putin, but now it's clear also that he understands that, hey, this is much harder than I thought it to be, and but and so he's going to now react. And one way he has reacted, which is unfortunate, is by attacking the civilian infrastructure of Ukraine, destroying the electricity grid, destroying the p- other parts of the infrastructure, which makes the war much more painful for Ukraine. But so you can see that, that this as of now, no one, I've spoken to many experts, by the way, no one seems to know how this is uh, uh, going to end. And, and there's no, sadly, there's no obvious mediator except for one. See, there's only one country that is trusted by Washington, D.C. and trusted by Moscow, and that country is India. And fortunately, India is the chairman of G20 this year. Now, as you know, Putin didn't turn up for the G20 meeting in Bali because he didn't want to... Uh, embarrass uh, President Jokowi because that would have created a walkout by the West and so on and so forth. So this year, hopefully with India as chairman of G20, there is some hope that perhaps that forum can be used to find ways and means of bridging it. So initially, if if they can just start with a ceasefire, that would be a big breakthrough. But I cannot even predict whether or not a ceasefire will take place.
1: Thanks very much, Professor. Because if you think about the end of the uh, Korean War, mm. it was a ceasefire. There wasn't a peace treaty. Mm. But a ceasefire would be more than enough mm. to give the populations, particularly in Ukraine, a relief, also for financial markets as well. Mm. Professor David, do you have any views on this?
0: Uh, build on Building on uh, Kishore's analysis, let me give you a Hollywood-style screenplay prediction uh, for our investors, which I, I follow, okay, uh, in, in managing my, my small portfolio, okay? That is, I think, most likely scenario is the following, okay? Most likely, Kishore may, uh, please bear with me, okay? Most likely, okay, uh, that is uh, that is uh, Russia will continue to see decline in its military military situation in in Ukraine so that president Putin will resort to a very powerful a drastic military weapon uh in in uh, to, to, to be applied to uh, in in Ukraine okay so, and then by that time the western countries see a threat of mushrooming into a world war so that the, the western side will step in to mediate a, a truth between Ukraine and Russia, and therefore, in the end, we will have a truth between the two sides. Russia will retain Ukraine and retreat from the eastern provinces of U- Ukraine, and the, the the war is still there. However, a truth, a permanent truth, will be there. The implication is that this year, if this happens, okay, there will be big shock to our financial markets. Share prices will drop down, yield will go up, okay. And uh, U.S. dollar will appreciate it drastically. Let's tighten our seatbelt. belt. However, the situation will be gone. Okay, uh, before a few months, there. If you, if we can do it properly, there will be wonderful opportunity for our uh, investment. Okay. Anyway, so this is meant for our for our investors, not for the media. Okay. <laughs> the media, <laughs> okay. Anyway, so purely, purely for for your for your for your for your uh, no. For your food, for your thinking, okay? Rather, you know, right? So please be critical of my views, okay?
1: <laughs> now, we really appreciate your views, David. They're very clear and very candid. And we agree with you. We are concerned about the risks that the war between Russia and Ukraine may become something that affects the global economy, global markets, again, so we watch it very, very carefully. Now, we've got a couple of minutes left here, so I want to ask you gentlemen both... One final question. We had a great tour of the world. We talked about China, talked about ASEAN, talked about the US, talked about Europe as well. So for this year, gentlemen, I want to ask you, on the global outlook, are you an optimist or are you a pessimist? Let me start with Kishore first since he has a little smile on his
2: face. <laughs> um, I would say I am an optimist uh, for Asia. And I do think that the critical thing is that China, especially as David pointed out, is going back to its very strong pragmatic traditions. China will do well. India under Prime Minister Modi will do well. ASEAN uh, will, will do well. And I think it's very clear that the leaders, you know, what, what is unusual, by the way, about our world is that the most competent leaders are no longer in the West, (laughs) they're in Asia. That's actually very significant. So for example, we know for certain that Prime Minister Modi is gonna win the next election. That's amazing. India, the world's largest democracy, you can predict who's gonna win the next election. So that sense of stability And and also, as you know, within India, I'm told that many rich Indians wouldn't invest in India. Now they are investing in India because they see lots of hope and opportunity. So, for the new CIA, I'm very optimistic. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks very much, Kishore, and uh, Professor David.
1: Are you optimistic about this year, or are you pessimistic?
0: Yes, I, I do agree with the uh, I'm optimistic. However, let me provide me, uh, you with my reason. My reason is that um, uh, it takes two hands to clap. Okay. So in principle, the Chinese side, the Chinese side is pretty pragmatic. It's not seeking to provoke. It's not seeking to scale up any uh, military or ideological or economic disputes with the U.S., and also, I think uh, the whole world, despite being uh, fragmented right now, is still pretty much economically interlinked. Look at the RCEP being signed two years ago. OK, so the world uh, is still very much connected. And people to people exchange is very intense right now. And the final and most important, most important is that I do believe that most of our investors in the room are adaptive are, are are being alert are being pragmatic so f- for 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 us we are adaptive we are pragmatic any twisty roads ahead of us actually uh, present opportunities for us okay so in this regard i am optimistic because we i'm optimistic from the perspective of a good investor okay if you are a, <laughs> if you are a, uh, dogmatic if you are slowing change. And uh, I think the world is uh, full of uh, bad news. You you have to be pessimistic. So I am optimistic from the perspective of, uh, I think, a good investor who are optimistic, who are pragmatic, who are adaptive, who are quick to adapt to changes.
1: Thanks very much, David. Thanks very much, Kishore. I think there's been a wonderful 45 minutes that we've had to hear the gentleman's views. I have to say I'm much more heartened after all of our discussions. Please join me and give them a big round of applause.
0: This podcast was brought to you by Bank of Singapore.